Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August 24th, 2016. This is episode 1856 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Wednesday, so it's interview day. I have CJ Kilmer, also known as Professor CJ or Prof CJ, with me today. He, of course, is the host of the Dangerous History Podcast. And uh, today we're going to talk about societal collapse from a historical standpoint and lessons that we can learn from that, uh, corollaries to today. We're going to talk about societal collapses that are from a very, very long time ago. We're going to talk about societal collapses that are from not very long ago, some we've even lived through, uh, many of us, and witnessed them and seen them and maybe didn't even realize what we were looking at. And the possibility that we are currently in the middle of a societal collapse right here in the middle of the modern world, and we just don't see it. We're in the event horizon, so to speak. All of that more in just a bit. Before I bring on Prof. CJ, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Today, of course, we are going to be talking about history, but let's take a look at our history segment. The year is 1856, and I have three for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have Borden's Rules for Dairymen. I have the Caning of Senator Sumner, and I have the First Gay President. And in other news, the first synthetic dye is created by accident. An 18-year-old chemistry student goofs up an experiment and finds purplish mauve color liquid at the bottom of his beaker. He applies for a patent, and the synthetic dye industry is born. Uh, the Neanderthal caveman is discovered. Miners discover bones in the cave of Neander's Hollow in Germany. Thus begins the search for man as ape. And the great train wreck. School children are on an excursion on the Pacific to picnic train. But they're running 20 minutes late and running headlong into the worst train disaster to date. 126 dead total, including the engineer who is blamed for his carelessness. The conductor survives, but he will kill himself later. Survivors, survivor's guilt is something quite, <clears throat> quite prevalent in history as well. These were tough to uh, choose from, but I'm going to read the caning of Senator Sumner because if you know anything about history, you, you know what we're headed for here very, very soon in the history segments. And this is really kind of the, the volcano beginning to erupt. Republican Senator Charles Sumner has spent two days ridiculing the practice of slavery and mocking Senators Stephen Douglas and Andrew Butler. Kansas is coming apart over the question of slavery. No decent man could support it, and one might infer that Butler and Douglas are not decent men. But there's no need for subtle hints. Sumner is quite clear. Slavery is Butler's harlot, 
and his tongue can say nothing against his mistress. Sumner's crime against Kansas speech comes to a close, and the pro-slavery advocates are outraged. A few days later, Democrat Congressman Preston Brooks waits for the Senate to close out for the day. Senator Sumner is sitting in his desk on the Senate floor. Brooks walks up to him and begins beating him vigorously with his cane. Sumner has no chance to get up. He trips and his legs are trapped between the table and the chair. Blood pours into his eyes and he is temporarily blinded. Other senators attempt to help, but Democratic Congressman Henry Edmondson brandishes a gun and says, Let them be! Finally, the two senators pull books back. The cane is left on the floor in bloody pieces. Senator Sumner is alive, but barely. He will return to the Senate in 1859. Congressman Brooks resigns, but he's re-elected by his constituents. He will die in the of the croup later this year and never take his seat. There are no limits now. They have tasted blood, and it is sweet. My take by Alex Shrugs. So much is happening at once that it's difficult to express how widely this whole slavery issue is spinning out of control. It looks like a war between Kansas and Missouri, and the federal government is supporting the slave states. Abolitionists like John Brown have decided that they must take the law into their own hands. This is the year of the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas, followed by uh, the Potawatomi Massacre in retaliation, then the Battle of Blackjack when John Brown's sons are taken captive. Breacher's Bibles, otherwise known as Sharp's Carbines, are being shipped by the crateful to abolitionist forces. Pitting North against South began as the political strategy pushed John Calhoun, uh, pushed by Calhoun. Uh, years later, the war between the states was characterized as a battle over states' rights, but if the territory of Kansas had a right to a fair vote, why was Missouri trying to fix the election? Nope, I'm calling BS on that one. Principles went down the crapper years before Kansas and Nebraska became territories. By 1856, any hope of sitting down and talking this one out was long gone. Yeah, you can see a nation heading to a point where it will uh, get very close to completely and totally ripping itself apart. That's what you can see coming here. And this this fight between these men, uh, quite a cowardly attack, by the way, I would say. If you if you walk up to somebody while they're sitting in a desk and been striking them with a stick, uh, you've attacked them, you haven't engaged them in a, in, in a, in a fight. I, I know there's no such thing as a fair fight, but in this context, I, I would say that this was a... a a, a, a brutal attack and a criminal attack, and uh, the guy with the gun was behaving criminally too. N notice this was all going on in in the Senate. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. I think you can draw your own conclusions from what what you see here. These two men are emblematic of the nation as a whole, and these feelings are everywhere at this point in history. It's good to take that into account because it's easy to look back and go, "I don't get it," or "How could they?" or "Why didn't they?" Um, it's a little bit different when it's you in the now. And for these men, it was the now. And it's interesting that the guy died of something like the croup. The croup, yeah. We do live in better times today than I think we give ourselves credit for at times. I don't see a lot of people dying of the croup anymore. Anyway, uh, he probably died of pneumonia. He was probably an older guy. I don't know. Um, anyway, with that, let's get... Uh, really deep into history today and the, the concept of societal collapse and even a little bit about anarchism with our guest, Professor CJ. Hey, CJ, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me back on. I think it's been, what, like a year and a half, something like that, right? It, it, it seems about that long. I wondered if you dropped off the edge of the earth or something. We don't hear from you enough, man. Um, but uh, for those that maybe didn't, because it is that long ago, there's probably people listening right now have no idea who the hell you are. 
So uh, could you start out by kind of introducing yourself, talk about your background, how you got into doing what you're doing now, that type of thing? Sure. Um, I guess the short version is I'm somebody who's always been interested in teaching stuff. I've just always liked teaching stuff. You know, Not long after I learned how to play guitar, next thing you know, I was given people that were more beginners than me lessons. And over time, I realized I was interested in history, and then I eventually I was like, oh, I guess I need some kind of a job or something. And so I decided that, okay, I like history, I like teaching, I'll put it together. So I went and I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, uh, never decided to go on to the Ph.D. Um, for a variety of reasons. But I've been teaching college history now, I think this is the start of my 11th year or something like that, and... The problem with me is like I don't fit in very well in academia um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, even just basic stuff like in my spare time, I'd rather go to the range than, I don't know, go protest somebody somewhere for saying something insensitive. And uh, the other thing is over the course of learning a lot about history – History actually converted me to anarchism. Learning history converted me to anarchism, which doesn't apparently happen for most people, but I can't understand why not. Because when you're looking at thousands of years of people in charge just screwing stuff up all the time, <laughs> you would think that more historians would be anarchists, but they're not. So um, I, I decided about uh, a little over two years ago, I had already been doing little mini podcasts for my students um, and then posting them in Blackboard, which is the online kind of supplemental thing we use to go along with our classes. A lot of colleges use it. And um, after a while of making these little 15, 20-minute little supplemental podcasts for my students about various things, I realized, like, you know, I've been listening to podcasts for a bunch of years, and doesn't seem like it's really that difficult, so why don't I try um, starting my own show? So I did, and it's the Dangerous History Podcast. And it is... As far as I know, still unique in being the only show that is first and foremost a history show, but done from basically a, a, an individualist anarchist point of view. As far as I know, there's nothing else out there like it. You know, Tom Woods talks about history sometimes, but his show's not really a history it's show not per about se. History. It's more of a current events and news show. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're he, doing anything good with that, you're going to go into history at times because. You have to have context, and he does right. a good job, but he's not a historian. Yeah, and you know, there's other history podcasts I like. I mean, everyone knows uh, Dan Carlin, and, the, and there are some other great ones out there, but uh, I didn't see any that were taking history in a podcast from like the just, you know, ripping into things like uh, the powerful and the state and all these sorts of things. No, no one was really doing it, so I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. Very cool. I mean, I want to just hit, before we get into societal collapse, because that's what we have you on to talk about today, a little bit on the anarchy thing there, because I think this is a, a big thing people don't understand when you say you're an anarchist. And while I've been pretty clear about what I mean by it, like I said, new people all the time, and you know, we'll go weeks without mentioning the word. So this is where I'm coming from, and you tell me if it's pretty much the same place you are, and I, I kind of think it is. If someone put a button in front of you or me right now and said, if you push this, every government in the world will dissolve and you can abolish the state immediately, put that button away because there's going to be a lot of dead people in this situation. As an anarchist, my view is that should be our goal. 
Anything less than the complete elimination of the state is not a noble enough goal. But I'm also pragmatic and, well, how do we get there? And it's probably not even my great-grandchildren that get to see it, but that should be where we're headed toward. Is that kind of where you come from? Yeah, I'm definitely on the same page with that. I was just actually um, the other day talking, you know, the same metaphor to somebody trying to explain because they're like, well, if we just eliminated the government tomorrow, wouldn't everything turn into Mad Max? And my answer was probably. And <laughs> I I see it as we need to focus on diminishing the demand for the state, because right now there's a high demand for the state. There's a lot of people who are dependent upon it because of their circumstances and because it's been there for so long. And also even people who aren't like dependent on it for their living or whatever, psychologically they're dependent on it. They, it's the way I think of it is it's sort of like Dumbo's magic feather. You know, Dumbo can fly without the feather, but he thinks he needs the feather. He thinks he so, needs the feather, yeah. Yeah, and I kind of see the state the same way. Like 99% of people could actually function quite fine, really, if they had to uh, yeah. without the state. But they think they need it. It's their magic feather. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a much more, you know, dangerous and destructive thing than just a, a stupid feather. But, um, yeah, I, I think the key is, is gradually to, to attack the demand for the state. Because I don't think most people really need it. They just think they do. Yeah. And so that's, you know, my podcast is kind of like my little contribution in the, in that, uh, that fight. Yeah. I talked about sort of it recently where I said, like, if, if, if you live next to me, CJ, and I just showed up one day and gave you a pie, right? You'd be like, Jack, thanks for the pie. But if I showed up the next day with a pie, you'd be like, dude, you really don't have to give me a pie. Well, if I did that, like, for two years, every time I showed up, you'd be like, here's Jack with my pie today. And if you started actually budgeting that into your family's meals, right, for two years, and I show up two years in one day and I don't have a pie, you're like, where the hell's my pie, jerk? Right? I depend on that pie now. We've count that pie's been here for two years. Well, for some people, these government programs have been there for multiple generations, and you don't need the pie. I never was obligated to give you the pie. But now you feel like you have to have the pie because it's just been done for so long. You feel that it's now you are entitled to it. If you weren't entitled to it, why did it ever show up? Right. Yeah. I mean, today the the demand for the state is so high that if you pulled the plug on it tomorrow, the first thing people would do is rebuild it, you know, yeah. or or at least fight amongst themselves over who gets to have the right to rebuild it. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, and I, I mean, I look at it this way too. Like they said, well, all roads would be toll, toll roads. Well, first, I don't believe that, but certainly some would be. Something has to pay for the the upkeep, maintenance, and building of roads, and that's the more roads. You know that, right? right? right. And more roads, more roads. Okay, fine. But let's say I stop stealing sixty, seventy percent of your money, but you have to now pay for the services of a road when you have a road. That doesn't seem like such a bad trade off to me. Yeah, it's just that a lot of those costs are hidden right now because they're built into gas taxes or they're built into other taxes and people don't even really pay attention. I mean, a lot of people who work a regular salary job never even look at what's deducted from their check before they receive it. They just look at the net pay and so they don't even miss what's gone. Yeah, yeah, the wage slave thing is that's that's what it does to people. I think you notice it when you're like 16 or today maybe 26 when you get your first real job and you know the old joke who's FICA and where they get my money and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I think that maybe that kind of wears off as soon as the reality of paying the bills hits you. And by the time somebody's been working for four or five years, yeah, they just you know well, what do you get paid? I get paid 670 dollars a week, 
And then, well, if you look at their check, no, they get paid $1,200 a week. By the time they pay for all the things that are forced to pay for, that's what's left, you know? Yeah. And it's, it, it's sad. And kind of moving toward the topic of societal collapse, it seems to me that many times that societal collapse comes with government just doing more and more and more and eventually reaching a breaking point. You can only suck so much out, you know, and put so much back in and sooner or later that breaks down. So can we kind of start out with, you know, what is a societal collapse and what is it from a historical vantage point? Yeah. Societal collapses are, um, actually they don't happen all the time, but when you're looking at the grand scope of all of human history, they actually happen relatively commonly and people kind of have this notion that progress is this unbroken continuous thing um, and they base that on like their life they look around and they go well you know when i was a kid no one had cell phones and then after a while we had these giant bulky you know not very good cell phones and now we've got the iphone so progress is a real thing and i'm going to assume the present trends will continue and they might they might there's a lot of you know um, uh, complex variables. You can't actually know all the variables of something as complex as human civilization. Uh, but the reality is we've got a lot of cases of collapses happening to very sophisticated societies. So I would say that a societal collapse is something like when a human society undergoes a relatively, and that's kind of a mushy word, but a relatively sudden downward shift in the complexity, the sophistication, the standard of living, etc. of that society. And then there's all these consequences on how people actually live their lives. And a lot of them are negative. There are there can be some positives, especially in the long run, though. So I would say for your audience, the way to think of a societal collapse is to think of Tiatwaki, because probably a lot of them know Tiatwaki, right? The end of the world as we know it. So it's Tiatwaki for a civilization or a, or a country or even a whole region. So it's it's not a SHTF situation, which would be kind of like a short-term kind of acute situation, which might be really bad, but lasts a relatively short time, just a few years at most. You know, a societal collapse is longer-lasting. Either you can't recover from it at all, in extreme cases or maybe in isolated societies like on a little island somewhere, or if a society does recover from it, it can take many generations to get back to kind of where they were. And sort of tying into what we were talking about just a minute ago, very often the systems like the, the economies and the governments, et cetera, that collapse were really screwed up. They had all kinds of problems and so on. But the reality is that people – in that society had built their lives on those systems. So as bad and flawed and screwed up as they were, people were dependent on them. So even when we might look at a pre-collapse government in history and think, you know, in hindsight, that was a screwed up situation and that state really needed to go um, to, you know, wipe the slate clean or start over or whatever. Uh, the reality is it's still going to be hard times for the people who are living through it in most cases. And, um, you know, potentially for generations afterward. Um, just because a system is bad and rotten and fundamentally flawed and kind of looking at it bird's eye view, you think, yeah, it should you know, go into the garbage can of history, doesn't mean that a lot of regular people won't be um, dependent on it and won't be kind of up a creek in the short term if it collapses. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that springs to mind there for us in modern day would be farm subsidies. 
there's no doubt that that whole system is just intrinsically flawed. But the entire agricultural industry, say whatever you want about it, it does feed us, is built around it. And there are a lot of small producers like myself. We work completely outside of that system, but, you know, what can I do? I can feed, I could feed 20 families their eggs every month for their whole month. That's it, though. That's not a drop in the bucket, right? So that system, if you have societal collapse with it, that alone, all of that infrastructure is built on that flawed system, and it's adapted to work as best as it possibly can, quite efficiently, I might add, inside that flawed system. So how does that system then turn and pivot and adapt if that entire component of it were to dry up and go away in one day? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, as messed up as these systems are, people get used to them. They get dependent on them. They um, plan their lives and where they live and how they live around these sorts of things. And so um, I, I guess in some ways, maybe another good analogy would be um, like a heroin addict. And if they try to quit cold turkey, I mean, I know there are people who do it successfully, but my understanding, and I've never used heroin, but my understanding is that most people who try to quit heroin, if they're like a serious addict, if they try to quit totally cold turkey, it's really bad. There's a good chance they might like not make it out the far end of the tunnel on that. Yeah, they can die. And, just yeah, from, exactly. From and even if they make it, even if they make it, it ain't pleasant. Yeah. And and uh, maybe they're better off if they if they use, you know, methadone or I don't know what. And, you know, not my area of expertise, but basically I think that's a pretty good metaphor of the idea that preferably you would want rotten systems to kind of gradually be phased out and replaced by something better. Um, historically, that doesn't really happen very often because the people in charge, by definition, benefit from the way things are right now. And so. Not only is it to their benefit to keep the current systems in place, but like they're not even capable of thinking about anything fundamentally different, even if they wanted to. Like it's outside of their box, so to speak. Sure, sure. So, and I mean, when you look at it, you've got the, the the business interests that are interested in basically creating this giant guild to keep things the way that they are and allow what they call progress only where they see fit as they see fit. And then you have the elected officials that are beholden to them. And we have elected officials making decisions about so many things now that even if they wanted to make the best decisions, they can't possibly. They have to rely on advice, and the advice always comes from the lobbyist that's paid by the business interest. And therefore, you've got a system that's 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 number one goal is self-preservation. You have you and I out here, and what we're advocating for actually is displacement, not not replacement. Not elimination, but displacement. You bring in a better solution, and over time it displaces uh, the, the current flawed system. And it's it's much better. It's like you said. It's it, it's the, it's the alternative to out of the frying pan and into the fryer, right? You you can go somewhere else that's better, not end up just in absence of this bad thing, and now you're in a worse situation. Yeah, and I think even thousands of years ago, a version of what you were talking about is taking place where like the king has all these lackeys and, and kind of flunkies and ministers around sure. him, and they're just sort of pandering to him and telling him what he wants to hear. And, you know, he doesn't even realize that his society is starting to fray at the edges and fall apart. Um, and he's, you know, he's still making money on taxes for the time being, so why not just keep doing the same stuff? Yeah, and the barrel maker's maybe not really that important a guy, but 
you know, 20,000 barrel makers across the realm all have this barrel makers guild and they all pay a due basically. And that can be used to bribe the official and make sure only their barrel. I mean, that kind of stuff is not new. That's, that's exactly how things work today in every industry that's of any significance, but it's, it's how they worked, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah. Anybody listening can just Google something called public choice economics. Public choice economics, um, it pretty much kind of explains through economic theory exactly how and why all this nonsense works. Can you talk about some of the different types of collapses that have happened throughout human history? Yeah, um, there, there's actually, first thing I would say is people use the term collapse and people use the term decline. And I'll admit there's kind of a gray area in between collapse and decline. Uh, the, the difference just being like how sudden is it versus how gradual is it? And um, you'd have to say that if a society takes a major step backward in like its standard of living and sophistication in in the course of a hundred years, that's kind of like gray area, you know, because it's not happening overnight. But on the other hand, it is happening fairly uh, steadily. And, uh, you know, if, if a society collapses in the space of a couple of years, like that's clearly a collapse. That's something that happens not even within one person's lifetime, but within one one little piece of a person's lifetime. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is there's decline, which is sort of like a gradual downward shift in, in sophistication and standard of living and all that. And then there's collapse, which is pretty sudden. And then there's kind of in between, which, you know, for our purposes today, I'll call collapse too, but understand sometimes this is this is more gradual but i think there's basically three kinds of civilization collapse or societal collapse and one of them is what people call reversion or simplification and this i think is probably what most people think of when they hear the term collapse and i think it's the most interesting it's the most kind of complex and um, has, has the most impact on history. So it's probably the one I'll be talking about the most. It's the one that I find the most interesting. So if you think about the Roman Empire in, in Europe collapsing, if you think about the Bronze Age collapse a, a few thousand years before that, if you think about the Mayan collapse, that's where you've got a society, it's not really conquered outright by outsiders. And it doesn't completely disappear off the map, but it experiences a big downgrade in kind of complexity and sophistication. And then the other two kinds of collapses that, that are there, but I, I don't think they're as interesting because they're not as, as complex. One is absorption, which is where somebody is conquered by somebody else and kind of absorbed into another society. So board theory, right? Yeah, in a way. I mean, think of what happened to somebody like, the Aztecs or the Incas when the Spanish took them over. Or um, if if you're familiar with further back, what happened to the Etruscans in Italy when Rome kind of took them over and absorbed them? It's like there's there's still remnants of Etruscan civilization in, in Rome. There's still people with Etruscan DNA, I'm sure, in, in Italy. Just like there's still to this day people with Aztec and Mayan uh, culture and DNA in, in Latin America. But it's not the same thing as... Before, you know, the, the other power came in and absorbed them. Um, and then, and then the last, last kind of collapse that doesn't, I don't think happen as often since kind of people invented agriculture, but it does occasionally happen. I don't think it would really happen today though, is 
what's called extinction or evacuation. So basically when a society like totally disappears, either because everybody abandons it or because everybody just flat out dies off, that's actually pretty rare, at least in the last 5,000 years or so. Um, one of the few examples that I know of that's relatively recently is the original Scandinavian, I think it was Norwegian, colonization of Greenland. Um, they, they kind of, after a while, it got really bad there, left. and they just kind of left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so that does happen. Isn't that, isn't that somewhat how, like, because isn't that really sort of what happened with Mayans? I mean, I know the Aztecs had the interaction with the Spaniards and, and all the colonists and all, but isn't it the Mayans, or is it some other uh, group from either Mexico or South America just kind of disappeared? Well, it, it is the Mayans... Kind of. Okay. Um, the Mayans were spread over a, a big part of Central America and Southern Mexico, really a big area. And they were culturally a unified culture with the same kind of languages and similar art and beliefs and whatever. But politically, they were not unified into a single empire. They had kind of independent city-states like ancient Greece. And what happened in the Mayan collapse, as I understand it, is that the southern part of the Mayan city-states relatively quickly became abandoned and the people left. And the northern parts of, of the Mayan civilization, the, I don't know, they may have experienced maybe a downgrade in their standard of living, but they didn't collapse entirely. So there, it's it's like kind of partially that. It's basically the southern cities of the Mayans um, were abandoned. And that's why you get those those ancient Mayan ruins that, you know, when the Spanish showed up, had not been occupied for, for centuries. You know, these abandoned cities in the jungle, but like really intricately built. They were great builders, great engineers, and they just, for whatever combination of reasons, couldn't live there anymore. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so what are some theories regarding the causes of these collapses? Yeah, it's something that historians continue to argue about and write books about to this day. And people often want to point to like one magic bullet for a collapse. They, they point to, oh, their, their economy failed or, um, one that used to be more common isn't anymore though is, and this tends to come from people who are sort of more conservative is the cultural explanation. They're just like, oh, suddenly their culture became decadent and, and, and lazy and whatever. And that's why they collapsed. But to me, that begs the question, like, well, why did their culture change? You know, like, um, a culture just randomly one morning like went haywire and, and turned against things like the work ethic and, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know. Um, people point to the environment sometimes, which I think in a lot of cases has, has at least a lot of truth. If not, it doesn't necessarily explain everything, but, you know, things like drought, flood, um, climate change, whatever it is. I mean, if suddenly a society's ability to grow food is totally diminished, that's going to mess other things up. Um, people point to military examples. They, they point to you know people being attacked or even conquered by another group. Um, some cases they might fend off an attack, but like doing so weakens them so much they kind of lose their mojo. Um, people will point to disease in some cases, and you know in the case of Europeans coming to America, clearly. The, the diseases they brought with them was, were a huge factor in collapsing a lot of the native societies. But I think it's important to differentiate between 
ultimate and proximate causes. And a lot of those things I just mentioned, I would consider in most cases proximate causes of collapse, meaning it's like the immediate thing you can look at and say, oh, look, there's disease or invasion or climate shift or whatever, and that causes problems. But I don't think that's the ultimate cause in a lot of cases. Um, the ultimate cause is like you look all the way back to the root because the reality is lots of societies experience economic problems, environmental problems, attack and invasion, etc., and they don't always collapse. You know, Rome fought off barbarians tons of times, no problem, when it was in its prime. But then when they were declining and collapsing, they start to lose to, like, third-rate barbarians. So, to me, you've got to look at something bigger to explain this, and people call it different things. There's complexity theory, sometimes they call it, or um, general systems collapse, and there's a very interesting book some of your listeners may have heard of. Maybe you've heard of it as well. It's The Collapse of Complex Societies by a guy named Joseph Tainter. And I think it's about 30 years old, and it is not a fun read. It is very <laughs> dry. Even for me, even even for me, someone who teaches history for a living um, and has a master's degree in history, like I don't have fun reading this book. But I think he's got a lot of important thoughts. And... Basically, the argument of this book is, and I'll save everyone the pain who hasn't already suffered through of reading this thing. The, the idea of this book is that complex human societies, they start off in a situation where they're able to solve problems by adding additional complexity to their society. So, by, by adding additional institutions and regulations and taxes and procedures and a bigger military, etc. For a long time, that's a way to solve problems that works and produces a positive return on investment, at least for the ruling class. But uh, Tainter says what happens is at a certain point for a society, and I think he says it's usually when they run up against the limits of wherever they're getting their energy from – at a certain point, you reach a situation where um, investing in additional complexity is providing diminishing returns and then eventually negative returns. In other words, each layer of additional complexity put on a society, no longer is it benefiting society, it's actually hurting it. And so things start to decline. Complexity no longer solves your problems, it's adding to them. And it gets to a point where it becomes really expensive just to maintain the status quo. And after a while, even that proves impossible. And basically that gives you a collapse. And doesn't that sound like any societies that we know today where they're getting drowned in complexity? And it's not complexity of, you know, the market offering you more options. That's not the problem. It's the complexity of, in, in a lot of cases, in most cases of the state, just you know, you have a problem. Great. Let's let's have another, you know, giant regulatory um, agency to deal with it. Let's, you know, add another 10,000 laws to the ones we already have kind of thing. So, it's almost a self-feeding process, too, because you get to a point where people are giving so much of their 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 treasure to Caesar that they begin to feel like, hey, you should solve this problem. 
right? For all of your taking from me, then then you should fix this problem too. And of course, Cedars is always happy to say, sure, I'm just going to need a little bit more of what I'm taking from you. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll always do it with the marking up. But I won't take it from you. I'll take it from those other people, right? So that I can fix your problem for you. And it just seems like the snake eating its tail. Yeah, absolutely. And over time, you can kind of see it happening if you study a society. You can see where they, they start off and for a while throw in some more complexity on things actually does work. And then they kind of degenerate in, in the results it gets. Um, one way to think about it is a little over a hundred years ago, the United States built the Panama Canal. Now, you know, you and I would probably have issues with how that territory was acquired and the shady means used to take it over and everything. Sure. But, you know, setting that aside, when you just look at the engineering and the building, they built that thing. They got it done. They did a very good job with, you know, what was available at the time in terms of technology and engineering. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they got it done early and possibly even under budget. I, I okay? believe that is correct. Yeah, I mean, like one of the man-made wonders of engineering of the world, the Panama Canal, and Team America got it done early and under budget, if if I'm not mistaken. And then look around today, they can't fix a pothole in a road early yeah. and under budget, okay? Yeah. And it shows you how, as, as messed up as the state was, there was a time when it was a bit more competent. And I think a big part of it is complexity. Look at how much more complex even the U.S. government is compared to 100 years ago. Oh, definitely. And I, I think I see that in just municipalities. So I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The whole Metroplex has about 6.2 million people. This is a, a big area with an awful lot of resources. And we have a road here that they've been dinking around and playing with for years, and it's still crap. Uh, and what all it really needs is a good paving. right? That's really, I mean, a few holes filled in here and there, but in the end it needs a good paving. When I lived in Arkansas, you know, and people make jokes about backwoods Arkansas all the time, and it is backwoods Arkansas. We had 11 miles of road they paved in two days, and they painted it, you know, they put all the lines in, on it the next week, and they were done. Now, I have to believe it's because of a flatter hierarchy that that just got done. It's like, we have the budget, this needs to be done, go do it, get it done, finish it. Where this road here is about six miles long. And again, they've been dinking on it for three years, and it's probably worse now than it's ever been. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Oh, and, Maroads. Yeah, Maroads, <laughs> right. And and anyone who's familiar with business, either either as an entrepreneur or even just sort of studying like business history, you realize that for any corporation or firm or company, there is a certain size beyond which you're actually becoming less competitive and less effective. And it, it, it varies depending on the company and what it is they're doing. But, you know, when a business is is growing and it's still kind of new, it's at a point where each additional employee, each additional, you know, department or whatever it adds is benefiting the whole enterprise. But at some point, eventually, they get to a point where getting bigger and more complicated is actually making them uh, bureaucratic and stupid, institutionally stupid. You know, the people running it might still be brilliant, but but as an organization, it becomes stupid. Well, are you familiar with Cornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy? 
Uh, is that the one about everybody rises to their no. level of incompetence? Okay, that's a different no, one. No, no. Pornell, uh, I think his first name is Jeffrey Pornell, is a kind of a modern thinker. And his iron law of bureaucracy is in any organization, there will be two groups of people. People, one group of people will be wholly dedicated to the mission of the organization, and the other group will be or- dedicated to the organization itself. And the missions will all go out and get hands-on employment in the company and go do the job. And those dedicated to the organization itself, well-hearted or not, are going to gravitate toward administrative-type positions. And therefore, they will rise in the organization to be the administrators, the bureaucrats. And eventually, they will have complete and total control of the organization and have no connection whatsoever to the original mission of the organization. And their goal will be more to preserve it than to actually get done what it was designed to do in the first place. And they will always make the decisions, and they will eventually destroy any organization. And his iron law states that basically no organization uh, that's a conventional organization, government or non-governmental, is, is, is immune to this. That will happen, always happen over time. And it, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I agree. It does make a lot of sense. And uh, I'll just throw out one example that maybe fits this. The Libertarian Party, <laughs> right? Yeah. How much are they really dedicated to to furthering the the message and and the ideology of liberty, and how much have they just become about kind of their own organizational, you know, what's good for for the people running the organization type thing? Well, and you have a, a an organization that knows it's not going to win the presidential election, right? Right. So you would think that it would come forward with candidates that are actually libertarians, because you got nothing to lose anyway. You're just trying to spread the message of liberty. And you, you, you put up two former Republican governors. Yeah. The one who's been the candidate three times and has never gotten over a 1% of vote <laughs> because they have organization and structure and they can get things done. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that, that is, you, you've nailed it. That is a perfect example of the, uh, of Pornell's Iron Law right there. I mean, that organization can't do what it was supposed to do anymore. Sure. And a lot of the larger charities and nonprofits, it's the same deal. Like the money you give to them, a huge chunk of it gets eaten up as overhead, whereas a smaller, newer, less top heavy charity, a lot more of the money you give will probably actually make it to, you know, the 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 hungry people who need to be fed or whatever it is. Well, I mean, even nonprofits, it doesn't necessarily be a charity. Look at the Boy Scouts of America. Right. It's a joke. When you look at what the policy of BSA America is today, it's a joke. And their CEO makes something like $9 million a year, right? And all of the people in BSA are freaking volunteers. And it's it, it, it's preposterous on its face, and they're telling the kids they can't have water balloon fights anymore or squirt gun fights anymore because it's not kind. And you're thinking – I was in scouts. I never, I didn't go in long enough to become an Eagle Scout or anything. I didn't really like it that much. Did it for a few years, but I'm thinking this is not what I remember. You know, this is nothing like what I remember. And you, I once you see, I think what's going to happen now, now that you've been exposed, CJ, to the Iron Law, you're going to see that pattern everywhere you look. And it's, in some ways, it's disheartening because it's like, well, I understand it. They never will. There's nothing I can do about it except go do my own stuff. You, you know, I, I immediately thought of an example from my own experience, and that is look at any of the big colleges and universities in America, 
and look at how top heavy they are with administration. I mean, look at, look at what a college president makes at a big prestigious university or whatever. It's, it's insane. I mean, and it's not the result of market forces or whatever. It's, it's, it's a cartelized, um, industry. But the other thing is, if you look at the big colleges and universities, look at their, what their endowment is and look at, what they actually do with a lot of their money, they, they do things that are not at all related to educating people better. You know, they build a fancier food court or, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, you start to realize that, that in this country right now, a lot of the biggest, fanciest colleges and universities are basically hedge funds that yeah. incidentally do a few classes here and there on the side so they can stay tax exempt as an organization. Yeah. Um, but but when you look at the the hierarchy of the larger colleges and universities, I mean, they are so top heavy. And well, if you look at what that president does, that you're you know pointing out his outrageous salary, almost nothing he does has anything to do with actually running the university. It has to do with running the organization. That that's primary job is to create revenue through both tuition and through uh, donation, right? Uh, to basically make sure that alumni pay back the school, even though they've already been, you know, through the ringer, and, and you know, the alumni are donating money to a school while they're still playing their, their 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 student loan debts. That's his job, and that's why it pays so much because he's not doing the job of a president of a university. He's doing the job of a, a you said a mutual fund manager, I guess. That's that's pretty close. Yeah, and unlike a typical a typical fund, um, universities are. Are tax exempt, <laughs> so it really is a and have subsidized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I would urge anybody to to go actually look into the details of some place like Harvard or Princeton or one of these places. Look at what their endowment is, and and look at what they actually do with that money. And it's not the only reason, but it's at least part of why higher education. Is not always putting, you know, educating people the best they can as, as their number one priority these days. Well, and if you have to look at the total subsidization of, of the educational system, so even a, a private institution of higher learning or a university it is massively subsidized beyond just their endowments and their donations because where do the students get the money that they pay the school to go to school? And you say, well, it's a loan, so that's no different than like a car or a house. It's completely different because they're getting government-backed loans. So in essence, 100%, well, I wouldn't say 100%. Some people pay for their tuition out of pocket, whatever. I'd say 90% or more of the revenue running through any modern education system is one form or another of a subsidy or a charity that they're not taxed on. Yeah, or I mean, even if it is a loan, it is a, a government-guaranteed loan, which essentially is a subsidy because – it allows people who otherwise would not be able to borrow that much money to be able to borrow it because sure. Uncle Sam is is guaranteeing it. Because so, let's yeah. say you had a lot of money, and I'm a young kid, and I want to go get a degree in, I don't know, uh, bitterness studies or music or something like that. And I come to you and I say, I want you to loan me some money. And you're like, okay, Jack, I'll, I'll loan you some money. And what are you going to do with it? I'm going to go to college with it. What are you going to do in college? I'm going to take music. Right. Well, what school do you want to go to? I don't know, Columbia, right? And I need $80,000 <laughs> a year for four years. And then I'll pay you back. What would you tell me? (laughs) Oh, hey, get out of here. Even if you had the money, right? You're like, this is not a good investment. The only way somebody can get a loan for something that preposterous is for it to be created in a fictitious market by government. Yeah, absolutely. 
So what are some effects when we have these collapses, man? Because we keep straying here because we both like the same stuff. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because I think probably we both agree that we're in some kind of decline and or collapse literally right now all around us. So Yeah, um, and before you go on with that, I think that's going to be like – Part of the, what people don't understand when they say I'm preparing for collapse, well, you're, you're in one, right? Like, like there was a, the Disney movie with the pirate one. You best start believing in ghost stories because you're in one. There, yeah. When we look at our historical context, our our timelines get really shrunken down. In our, you know, we think of like the American Revolution as being okay. We had a war, we won, it was over. No, it was eight years plus years of lead up and and many things after before it was really all said and done. But when we study in history in school, it's this little tiny thing. So we look at it, collapse of Rome, and it's like it's centuries. So you can be yeah. in one and event horizon, right, of the black hole. Yeah, and that's that that fuzzy area between between decline and collapse, and sometimes the decline. A lot of times you have both. You have a decline for a while and then a collapse. And yeah, like the event horizon, the people living through it, a lot of times don't really, they're circling the drain, so to speak. <laughs> and they don't really realize what's happening until they're at the last little phase where you're circling real fast. And then they suddenly are like, oh my gosh, something happened. And that's, that's why a lot of times people focus on, on, um, what people who really study this stuff call the proximate causes, the immediate cause, you know. So rather than looking at the larger picture and the backstory and saying, well, you know, actually they were doing this, that, and the other that was, you know, eating away at their society's, uh, capital and, and ruining their economy for a bunch of generations. And then, yeah, here in, over the course of about 10 years, it just totally, you know, hit the, Hit the sewer, but, um, well, effects of, of collapse, there are a bunch, and of course, every snowflake is different, right? Every society collapses in a little bit different variation, but you see a lot of these things, um, to one degree or another, population decline. That's a big one. And it doesn't necessarily mean everyone dies. It could just mean everyone moves somewhere else. Or something along those lines. Or just gradually over a few generations, each additional generation has fewer children or they don't live as long or whatever. Um, material standard of living and kind of the quantity and quality of goods in a society gets significantly noticeably reduced on average for most people. Um, sophistication goes down. Widespread literacy might become less widespread knowledge, learning, etc. These things decline. And one that really kind of ripples out and, and hurts a lot of these things more is that in a lot of cases, division of labor and specialization, which normally are really great. You know, us proponents of the free market, we know that the division of labor and specialization is a great thing that makes an economy more productive and more innovative and all these things. And they're, they are wonderful things. I appreciate that I don't have to produce everything that I use for myself because if I did, I'd be screwed. But those things work when things are good and stable and everything's cool. But when things start to break down, then not only does specialization start to go away and division of labor starts to break down, but over specialization in the context of a collapse, over-specialization becomes a huge liability. 
you know, supporters of the free market, like you and me and, you know, probably a lot of the people listening, we make a big deal out of the virtues of the division of labor and specialization. We say, you know, this is one of the secrets to why a free economy is so um, productive and innovative. But unfortunately, in a collapse, specialization and division of labor become kind of a problem. And in that situation, versatility becomes actually a lot better. Being a generalist becomes a lot better than being a super specialist. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can we talk about maybe some examples of collapse like in like pre-modern times and versus modern times? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. There, there are a few I've already covered on my show um, a while ago. So my production quality was crap, uh, but I still, I still stand by the content. And one of the ones I did a multi-part series on a long time ago was the Bronze Age Collapse. And this is one that is not as well known as the collapse of the Roman Empire. That's the one everybody knows. But the Bronze Age Collapse, which happened I guess in the neighborhood of like 1,500 years before the Roman Empire collapsed. The Bronze Age collapse, a lot of people who've studied it say, in a way, it's more dramatic than the Roman Empire's collapse. So we're looking specifically at the Eastern Mediterranean. After about maybe 3,000, 2,500 BC, there starts to be um, not one but a bunch of pretty sophisticated, complex civilizations in the Eastern Mediterranean. You've got a, a Greek civilization made up of, of Mycenaeans and Minoans. It's not exactly the same as the later Greek civilization, you know, of Aristotle that we all know. It's a little different. And then we've got um, the Hittites in what today is Turkey. We've got various groups like the Canaanites in what today is kind of the, the Levant or the, the western part of the Middle East, you know, where Israel and, and Syria and Palestine, that whole area there. And then, of course, you've got Egypt. So, like, the whole kind of a crescent on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. You've got these civilizations that for, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand years were doing pretty well by the standards of, like, 2000 BC. Like, they're, they're fairly high tech. They're pretty sophisticated. They're cosmopolitan. They're trading with each other. They have diplomacy with each other. They fight each other. And then all of a sudden, over the course of like literally 50 years, the shit hits the fan. And it turns from that into not just an SHTF, but into Teotihuacan. So over the course of about 50 years, at least four civilizations, the Mycenaeans, the Minoans, the Hittites, and the Canaanites, they pretty much collapse entirely as civilizations. And Egypt weathers the storm as a civilization, but Egypt is so hard hit by the whole thing that it kind of loses its mojo. Egypt is never really the same, the same thing again after that. So the, the Bronze Age collapse is a huge one that really is dramatic. I mean, we can see that they were pretty cosmopolitan by the standards of back then shipwrecks have been found from the bronze age before the collapse that shows there's this long distance trading going on between the mediterranean you had specialization various areas specializing in what they're good at and then trading with the rest and then all of a sudden it just 
really quick things collapse and the the physical archaeological record shows this. There's there's an end of written records altogether in a lot of areas. There's a huge decline in the the quantity and quality of of archaeological artifacts that show that people's standard of living is going down. There are cities that are literally broken and burned that they find evidence of. And you occasionally even find written sources, believe it or not, from right in the middle of the Bronze Age collapse, writing about, oh my gosh, everything is going bad. And so uh, one of my favorite examples this is just so cool. There was a tablet that people discovered in a city, I think in the western part of the Middle East in the Levant, called Ugarit, a city that existed during the Bronze Age and then was wiped out. And archaeologists found a clay tablet, which was like the paper of back then. There was a clay tablet found in a kiln. It wasn't fully fired and finished yet, but someone had written on it. And basically, what it is, is it's a message that was going to be sent to another king nearby asking for help. And the clay tablet is like, oh my gosh, everything's hitting the fan. There's uh, attackers coming in from the sea. Cities are getting burned. Help, help, help. We need help. And this thing was found by archaeologists. It was still in the oven, not fully cooked, with this message of, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. So, I mean, we have all, all this interesting evidence that shows there's this really dramatic downward shift and collapse and all this chaos and there are greek tablets that have been found where they're talking about oh my gosh we've got to keep a vigilant watch on the coast you know dangerous people are showing up there's evidence that in greece they were trying to make weapons in a hurry they were they were even going into temples and melting down you know sacred items that were metal in order to make arrowheads and spear points because they thought you know Apparently, with good reason, they believe that, that people, dangerous people were coming. So there's all this different evidence that shows that a really serious um, collapse happened with the Bronze Age. And there's a lot of things in there that are really familiar to kind of modern-day survivalists. Like just one example is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, there's evidence that was discovered that basically people were – retreating to bug out locations for lack of a better term that's what they were doing there was um evidence found of a of an inland mountaintop village in crete where there there were communities that seemed to have been previously kind of like almost vacation homes for people but then when the when the civilizations of the bronze age collapsed people moved there permanently as like a bug out location mm. people moved to these very harsh mountain areas that have pretty harsh winters and less productive agriculture, etc. And basically, why would they do this unless they've got a really good reason to want to leave the, the lowland productive farm areas, but that are also really vulnerable? So there's there's literally archaeological evidence of people bugging out during the, the Bronze Age collapse. And there's um, a huge downgrade in technology. There's a huge downgrade in population. Probably the hardest hit was Greece. Greece went into a dark age that was possibly worse and more dramatic than the, the dark age after the collapse of Rome. It took hundreds of years for Greece to kind of rebound from that and eventually, you know, give us the classical Greece of Socrates and, and Aristotle and all that. For hundreds of years, like literally almost nobody in Greece could even read or write. Um, so 
That's a that's a big one from a long time ago. Uh, another one, of course, everybody knows is the Western Roman Empire. Um, and I say Western because, of course, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, trucked on for like another thousand years. Um, but, you know, Roman Empire, people are more familiar with that story, but they, they still argue about to this day exactly what went wrong. Um, I would argue that, you know, besides just the general story of, of complexity, taking it down like like Tainter said in his book, specifically you've got in Rome clear evidence that you've got increased taxes and inflation that are just destroying the Roman economy, and the Roman rulers didn't know what else to do other than, like, more taxes and more inflation. And over the course of a few centuries now, we can look with hindsight. We can see the inflation screwing things up. We can see the the taxes ruining the economy and things like that. And um, then along comes comes Diocletian, one of the Roman emperors, in the early 4th century. And he says, all right, I know how to solve this economy. I'm going to have rigid price controls over all the goods and services in the economy, and I'm going to micromanage it. I'm going to put in place laws that say that people can't change jobs. They have to stay in whatever job they they kind of are in right now, and their sons have to follow in their job. So I'm basically going to have a totalitarian economy. And, of course, as we know, like that doesn't solve the problem. It makes everything worse. And as the economy of Rome declines – the, the quality of the Roman soldiers declines noticeably from, from the best army in that part of the world for, for centuries to being really kind of a, a joke until increasingly you've got barbarians coming in who in centuries past the Romans would have just fought them off without breaking a sweat. But once they're in a decline and in a collapse, they can't do it anymore. And so these kind of, in some cases, really not very impressive third-rate barbarians start showing up, the Goths, the Vandals, all these sorts of people. And by 493, that that's considered the official end of the Roman Empire, 493. That's when the last Roman emperor, who was really kind of a joke anyway, um, gets just totally overthrown by the Ostrogoths. And when Rome collapses... Similar thing happens as the Bronze Age collapse. Trade disappears. Infrastructure falls apart. People's standard of living declines. You know, the archaeologists, they look at pottery, housing, coinage. Even the size of livestock animals declined during the post-collapse era in Europe. You know, the average size of a chicken or a cow literally went noticeably, measurably down after the collapse. That's that's how much it affects everything when there's a collapse. And of course, the archaeological um, evidence shows us that literacy declines drastically after that as well. It becomes almost nobody can, can read and write. And, and you can see things like this happening in other parts of the world. In the New World, there are collapses of some of the civilizations before uh, Europeans show up. Obviously, there's a collapse demographically when the Europeans show up and bring all their diseases. But even before Europeans showed up in the New World, you've got um, the Maya collapse, as we mentioned before, where very sophisticated civilization took a major hit and abandoned a lot of cities. Uh, the Anasazi of Chaco Canyon in what today is New Mexico, they had a thing that was sort of similar to to the Mayan collapse where they just flat out abandoned certain areas. So these things are not as rare in history as people might think. Most people have only heard of the Roman Empire collapse, maybe one or two others. But in fact, if you read a book like 
like Tainter's book, which again isn't the greatest read, but in there he lists like every civilizational collapse that he knows of, and it's actually a bunch of them. Can you maybe bring it forward a little bit now and talk about some more recent uh, examples? Because I mean, I can think of whole places that just don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, there there are there are countries that disappear off the map, and there are places that splinter off, and there are places that are on the map the same, but they're really not the same to the people on the ground. Yeah. And I, I know you've had on on your show because I'm a listener. You've had um, what's his name, Furfal from oh, yeah. Argentina, and so he's talked about what's happened in Argentina in recent decades, and I, I think that's pretty clearly a collapse, at least yeah. to some degree there. Yeah, and Ar- still there, but I don't think people get like Buenos Aires was like the Paris of South America. Yeah, yeah, with that yeah. reputation, and it was a destination that people wanted to go to, and it had. Fabulous growth and opportunity, and it, yeah, not so much anymore. Yeah, and then also a while ago, you had a guy from the former Yugoslavia, right? Am I remembering that yeah. right? Yeah, uh, Selko. I mean, same deal. Yugoslavia after the after the the communist regimes fell, Yugoslavia, at least certain areas of it, really had a collapse. And I would say that the Soviet Union itself even within the borders of Russia, if you look at what happened when the Soviet Union fell and what it meant for the standard of living and the opportunities and the quality of life of most average citizens in what used to be the Soviet Union, it took a big hit. I mean, Russia that emerged from from the remnants of the Soviet Union, Russia was left with all this debt from the Soviet Union. They were left with a ruble that was losing its value by the second. They were left with these crummy factories that made stuff no one else, you know, no other country in the world wanted to buy. Sure. They, uh, under the Soviet Union, as screwed up and awful as the Soviet Union was, people were guaranteed jobs. They were guaranteed income. They were guaranteed certain basic things under communism. And yeah, there were shortages and the quality often sucked and whatever. But even that went away. When, when the system failed, people faced even worse shortages of food and consumer goods and all that stuff than as bad as it had been under communism. It was worse in the immediate aftermath of the collapse. I mean, communism, it was a horrible system. I think most reasonable people would agree with that, but it was in place in the Soviet Union for about 70 years. So you can imagine 70 years is enough time to get multiple generations of people completely dependent on it as as bad of a system as it was there was high inflation that wiped out the value of people's savings and unfortunately for that part of the world a lot of the so-called free market reforms in practice really just amounted to kind of letting kleptocrats and criminals fleece whatever value was left in the country and so you know the free market gets a bad name and then there's a brain drain, which is another thing you see commonly in, in more modern collapses where a lot of the most productive people, if they weren't among the kleptocrats, and then, you know, if they were kleptocrats, they had a good reason to stay so they could keep doing what they're doing. But a lot of the most productive people who were the kind of upright, honest people, they got the hell out. So there's a brain drain. People are 
if at all possible, they're fleeing the Soviet Union to come to the U.S., to Western Europe. Uh, and if they're, if they're Jewish, a lot of them also, you know, went to Israel as well. So I think you don't have to look that far back in history to see a collapse. You know, if you want to look at the Soviet Union, of course, Zimbabwe, I mean, Zimbabwe, when it was Rhodesia, for all of its faults and, and the racial policies and whatever, I'm not defending those. But when it was Rhodesia, it was one of the less bad places in Africa to live. And thanks to things like land confiscation from people who actually knew how to farm, and of course the very famous Zimbabwe hyperinflation, you know, printing up all the money you can, you, you end up with a place that used to be one of the better places in Africa, relatively speaking, and in the case, in, in the space of a couple of decades, it turns into one of the worst places in Africa to live. And so those are a couple of pretty recent ones. And if you're thinking, yeah, but those are, you know, the thing is those countries aren't Merca, right? They're not special like Merca. Yeah. And, and that kind of thing won't happen here. Well, now, now I'm going to throw out one that might surprise people a little bit more. And I'm going to say that the American Rust Belt, as it's known, oh the American yes. Rust Belt has been in collapse since about the late 60s, early 70s. And when you look at the Rust Belt, and I know it's where you're originally from, so, you know, you can, I'm sure, firsthand experience back this up. There's, there, the Rust Belt has been in that area between decline and collapse for decades. And, we don't always acknowledge that that's a collapse because we think in terms of the whole United States. And, you know, if Texas and, and Florida and someplace like that are adding jobs and the Rust Belt is losing jobs, we look at it and go, well, that's all the wash. But the reality is you go to the Rust Belt today and, and go to some of these cities, you know, Detroit, everyone knows about. Don't just hit Detroit. Go to Buffalo. Go to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Baltimore even. I mean, some people would consider Baltimore not Rust Belt. I do, even though it's geographically kind of out there a little bit. Um, I think it's a Rust Belt city. And just visit it. You'll see. Uh, well, yeah, there, you're, you're hitting right around like – so where I grew up actually is like in this piece in between the Rust Belt, right? We didn't really have the steel and stuff like that. We were based on coal. And and that's another entire collapse. You think, well, coal, they're doing more with coal today than ever before. Not in central Pennsylvania. They, in the Billy Joel song about the Rust Belt, they've taken all the coal from the ground. It, it's the, the coal that's left is mined entirely different than it was in the past, and it's gone. And entire, you know, I, I, I see it when I when I rarely get back there. The older people, like my grandparents, that had these subcultures, Lithuanian and Ukrainian and Georgian uh, and Irish, which sounds off from the other, and Polish, but that was all settler. All of that culture in that area is gone, and it's directly attributable to the decline in the ability to make a living there and so many of the young people of, of the better quality leaving. And then the people that are just kind of like, and I don't need to put it down, but kind of like slugs didn't leave. And not everybody that stayed was a schlug, but more than not, and therefore the, the the entire will to preserve that culture went away. And the people that left, since they're you know one off here and one off there, there's no one to do it with, and all of those sub American cultures are just gone. 
Yeah, I mean, there there have been some good documentaries and things like this done about some of these cities. There was a really good one about Detroit I watched on Netflix a while ago, but I can't remember the name of it. And people, there, there's now what's called disaster porn, <laughs> where people will actually travel to some of these places, and they'll go there to sort of marvel at what's left of of those abandoned factories and buildings and whatever. I mean, and, and I'll, I don't think you need too much of an historical imagination to picture this is kind of like explorers going to the Mayan ruins of the cities they abandoned and kind of walking around and looking at things going, wow, <laughs> somebody a long time ago, someone, I mean, a lot of the abandoned buildings in these Rust Belt cities, they're really well built. You know, they have intricate architecture and beautiful little um, ornamentation on them and whatever, and they're just totally abandoned. And and a lot of these cities, I mean, again, Detroit's the the most advanced and the most well known example. But a lot of these places, there's there's huge pieces where there's nobody, you know. And um, you look at what their population was 50 years ago and what it is today. They've they've lost a huge percentage of their population. And and like you said, it's it's the 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 for lack of a better term, the better people. It's the brain drain. It's the, the people who have the ability to get out of these places, in most cases, do. And it's the same whether you're looking at at Detroit or Gary, Indiana, um, Youngstown, Flint, Dayton, Pontiac, like all these these places and many other smaller, less well-known towns. You've got population decline. You've got specifically brain drain. I mean, disproportionately, the people leaving have the most human capital. You've got economic collapse. You've got increase in almost every type of social problem, you know, crime, drugs, whatever it is. You've got urban decay. You know, you've got, like I said before, these abandoned ruins in a lot of cases of buildings that were really well made and and used to be beautiful in some cases, these abandoned buildings. And I mean, because I'm somebody who who reads widely in history and thinks of things in this term, in these terms, I look at some of these things and I can't help but think of, of ancient Mayan ruins that were, were abandoned in the jungle for a while. And even the geography of it is, is kind of reversed, but it's the same thing. The Mayans, when their civilization collapsed, a lot of them moved to the northern part of kind of the Mayan area because that was where things weren't as bad and there wasn't really a collapse happening. And in the case of the Rust Belt, you had the opposite. You had people moving south, right? I mean, how many people over the last 40 or 50 years have left Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, wherever, and come to Florida, to Texas, to Arizona, to even Southern California? I mean, it's, it's very eerily similar in a lot of ways. So, you know, starting after World War II, but really hitting the gas in the 70s, people were leaving the Rust Belt in droves for the so-called Sun Belt states. And again, they're, the ones that left first were the, probably the ones with the most human capital. And yeah, they, they came to Texas, they came to Florida. Um, obviously, you're, you're an example of I was someone. Say hello, I was yeah. exactly, you know, I, I looked at my opportunities after I got out of the military which I joined because there were no opportunities and went, gee, in three years, not much has changed. Um, I had a friend here in Texas. He said, hey, you know, the economy's pretty good here. You can probably find a job. I came here. I found a job. I never left. And it, 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 it I, I, what I, what I really found amazing was I was living in this little apartment complex in Louisville, Texas. 
And, you know, when you live in an apartment complex and you're single, you kind of meet everybody that moves in because the pool becomes the central thing. So you're out drinking beer at the pool. Somebody, you see somebody moving in, they come over, check the pool out. Hey, you start talking to them. I met like four people. This was back in 93. I met four people in that apartment complex in the six months that I lived there before I got my own place that were from Pennsylvania that had just moved there. So that was five, including me. And, and that's 93. There was, and I don't think that exodus has abated because there continues to be less and less opportunity in that area because the solution to the problem is always more control, more regulation, more tax, which just, again, continues to force out the producers and leaves you with consumers. Yeah, just slap more complexity on the problem and uh, expect that to work when it's obviously just making everything worse. And I, I have to say, my own uh, stepfather, his family, they're from Detroit. You know, they're yeah. from they're from like the heart of this collapse. And my stepfather in, I think, the early 70s, before I was born, moved from Detroit down to – he went to school in Alabama, then moved to, to Florida to live. And, I mean, if you look at his, – his family had been in Detroit for multiple generations. You know, a lot of them either worked in the auto industry or they, they ran small businesses like bars and restaurants that basically were, you know, being – being paid for mostly by auto workers, etc. And most of his family, and they were like really one of those those tight knit community sort of families that were really plugged into the city of Detroit and all that sort of thing. But when it started to go downhill, most of them left. And so my stepfather now is is in Florida and has been there for forty years. And if you look at most of the rest of his family, they left Detroit. Sometime in the last 30 years, a whole bunch of them moved to Colorado and some other different places, but they got out. And I mean, these, these are, these are good, hardworking, productive people. And, and they love Detroit. I mean, he still talks nostalgically about what Detroit was like a long time ago when it was, you know, a nice place to live and had a lot of culture and, and a lot of beauty and so on. He still talks about it was a nice place to live back then. But, you know, I mean, at a certain point, civic pride and sentimental attachment to a place runs out when when everything is just you know circling the drain yeah and i mean with that in mind as people look at this you know the 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 best thing to do would be let's prevent uh, a societal collapse but much like the roman watching the the this you know rome fall around them there's not much we can really do to prevent that collapse so what lessons can we learn in adapting to this type of thing it was an understanding that we might not see the totality of the collapse in our lifetimes. We might just be in that that circling the drain mode, going deeper and deeper in more and more stagnation. So what should people do today, gleaning from the past, looking to the future? Yeah, that's that's the tricky part, because everyone's instinct is to try to stop a collapse from happening. And the problem is, is that that's... It's just not going to happen because, by definition, the people in charge are not willing and able to solve the problem. Even if they wanted to, they're not able to, but they're not even willing to, honestly. So people expend a lot of their, a lot of their, um, 
mental energy and perhaps even their finances and their time and their emotional energy into like, well, if we could just get the right people elected, they'll fix the system. <laughs> you know, all that kind of crap that probably people who've been listening to your show for a while have, have abandoned, but maybe some new listeners are still kind of in that mode. I used to be there myself. I you know? did too. That's why, yeah. that's why I laugh. I, I laugh not just because of how preposterous it sounds to hear somebody say it now, but because I used to be that someone who said it, right? That, that I really thought if we got the right elected people in, we could fix the problem. And now that, that sounds like saying, if we polish this turd long enough, it will shine <laughs> and it will be beautiful and we will want to make a ring out of it. I mean, it's right. just, it's so pre- utterly preposterous. But with the majority of people, and I think the majority of people really believe that. Like even yeah. the people that are politically apathetic that don't vote really believe that if, well, if the right people got in, it would all be fixed. Yeah, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that regardless of what system of government you have, whether it's democracy, republic, or whatever, first off, in practice, they're all oligarchies. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the iron law of oligarchy, so much so I did an episode on it a long time ago. But besides that, you know, people, they, they don't understand that the way politics works, whether there's elections or not, whether it's a, a monarchy or something else, the way politics works is basically it's a contest to see who is the most psychopathic and, and manipulative and all that sort of thing. It's not to get to the top of the totem pole doesn't require you to be to be to be honest and forthright and to be thinking long term. Those are skills that will not get you to the top of any political totem pole of any type. The skills that get you there are thinking short term and basically being ruthlessly uh, manipulative and, and psychopathic. And so my point is, in general, most of the people at the top of any political hierarchy, I believe, and I, I think thousands of years of history backs this up. Yeah, occasionally, by luck or whatever, a decent, intelligent, well-meaning person might show up there. But in general, your default position is going to be people who are stupid who or who are evil or who are both stupid and evil. And that's that's like that's kind of like water flowing downhill. That's who's going to flow up to the top of a political system 99 percent of the time. So to me, anyway, if you look at history, I see it as it's not really worth it. To think about if we just get the right people in charge, they'll fix it. That would be like – think of how stupid it would be if you were a citizen living within the boundaries of the Roman Empire in like 350 AD when the Roman Empire is really getting pretty messed up and frayed and its economy is really in trouble. And looking at it and going, let's make Rome great again. If we could just get the right emperor. Yeah, we've had, we've had some bad luck recently. We've had a few crappy emperors, but the system is still fundamentally sound. And if we could just get the right emperor in there with the right reforms and whatever, he'll fix it. And of course, a lot of people, when Diocletian took over, um, in, I think, I think he took over in like the 280s AD, a lot of people saw Diocletian as the strong man who's going to get things done and is going to fix Rome. And his solution was like, yeah, well, uh, let's let's have all those price controls and economic controls on the economy. And also another thing Diocletian did that I didn't mention is he was a, he was big on building up Rome's military at a time when Rome's economy was falling apart. He's like, you know what we need? Uh, aside from price controls, we need to have more military spending and that's going to solve the problem. And 
again, if you're if you're an average Roman farmer in 350 AD, and you're looking at the situation, thinking that if you could just somehow get the right emperor on the throne, everything will magically turn the way it was a few hundred years ago. That's insane. And we can see that looking back there, we can see it because we don't have an emotional, patriotic attachment to Rome. So we can look at it objectively and go, that would be ridiculous. You know, it would be a lot smarter if you're that Roman farmer is to think about, like, storing some food and maybe relocating and learning some skills that are useful and whatever. Um, but, but then, of course, how many people in America today who might actually look at the Romans' predicament sanely and rationally would look around today and like, well, of course, the first thing to do is to, you know, get a better person elected uh, next year. Like, that's obviously what's going to happen. Well, I mean, kind of think about it this way. What, let's put you back um, in, uh, oh, wow, 1859, and, and you're living in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and you're a relatively moderately successful businessman. What would have been the smartest thing for you to have done? Move to Canada. Right? Or at least like <laughs> Maine or, you know, somewhere far enough north of the Mason-Dixon line because you had freedom to do that at the time, right? I mean, no one yeah. would have cared that you came up there and, and set up your shop. You're far enough away to be out of the fighting. Um, and if you didn't, doesn't there get to a, a point where that's not an option anymore? Yeah. And it's right about the time that everybody figures out that that's what you should do, that it's no longer an option. So you have to like, to me, you have to figure out those strategic moves, whether geographic, whether they're financial, whatever they are, you have to figure them out before the mainstream does. Because once the mainstream does, you know, then there's controls on it, then there's no room for you, whatever, or it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like investment. If, if you wait until everybody else is is jumping on something like that's by definition too late. Yeah. You know, you're you're too late to the game. And people ask me how I knew it was time to sell silver when it was really high a few years ago and I said when I saw laundry mat <laughs> stations with signs that say we buy silver, that was time to get out. Yeah, yeah, there's there's the old cliche, I can't remember who first came up with it, but it's like I knew it was time to to stop investing in real estate when I heard my barista at Starbucks talking yeah. about investing in real estate. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's when it's all fixed and it come to a head. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a good idea to always try and and be ahead of of the herd mentally. And one of the things that I always urge when this sort of stuff comes up is maximizing your own versatility as a person. The, the more things you're able to do and just in general, the more adaptable you are is going to no, – nothing is a guarantee. Nothing guarantees that you're going to come through a, a disaster okay. I mean certain things are just so bad that like nobody, nobody can really dodge it. But the more versatility you have, the better off you are in terms of your skills and just your overall adaptability, like your, your ability to acquire skills. And – you look at what happens in a lot of collapses is you have a lot of people who, because things were relatively okay for a long time, they have very specific, narrow knowledge and skill sets, and that's it. And they're up a creek when it comes to anything else. And again, when times are, are stable and the economy's booming and whatever, like that, that can get you a very good living and, and a lot of prestige. And meanwhile, in that situation, the, the renaissance man jack of all trades might actually not be doing as well as you 
But when times turn south, your skills matter because you can't count on the specialist to come solve your problem for you. And a great example that is really obvious in the Roman collapse is because Rome had, had existed for so many centuries and it had such an excellent first-rate military for so long, what had happened was the Roman military had gone from being a citizen militia, you know, similar to like the old Greek hoplites and whatever. It had gone from being a citizen militia where every adult male citizen had to serve, which meant that every adult male citizen had at least a basic knowledge of fighting and probably had some basic hardware. And over time... Just just one specific example of specialization, the Roman military became a full-time professional career organization, and it meant that they were really good. They were probably better trained, at least when Rome was you know doing well. They were better trained because that was their full-time job, being a Roman soldier. But the downside is it meant that the society at large lost those skills, no longer did almost all adult male citizens have at least some basic military hardware and some basic knowledge of how to use it. And so what happens is as the Roman government and, and the Roman military is falling apart, there were a lot of places, especially out on the frontiers of the empire, where the Roman state simply couldn't defend them anymore. Uh, they, they literally didn't have the resources and the troops and these places were kind of like left out, you know, in the wind. And, and basically, in a lot of cases, you know, barbarians are at the gates, literally. And they're like, oh my, oh my God, you know, we've got to figure out, we've got to learn how to fight really fast because they're breaking down the door. And so, um, I, I would definitely say, and, and one of the things I like about your show is you don't get lost in the rabbit hole of survivalism is just about tactical stuff and whatever. And I agree with that. But on the other hand, um, I, I would urge people, and I know you'd probably agree with this, to at least have some basics of being able to defend yourself as part of your part of your repertoire, so to speak. That you know, certainly look into other useful skills as much as possible, but don't forget about that. Um, don't spend all your money on tactical stuff and whatever, but but don't forget that that might come in handy if you know there's no longer specialists to come protect you. Um, and, and another thing I would throw out there, people I think would benefit from looking at if they've not read it already, very interesting book, Anti-Fragile, by I think it's, what's his name, not Nassim Taleb or something like that, Anti-Fragile. It's the same author that wrote The Black Swan, which um, probably a lot of people have heard of. And in Anti-Fragile, he talks about things and institutions and whatever that not only do they weather problems and randomness and disorder and change, something that weathers disorder and randomness and comes out basically the same, that's, that's robust and, and, and resilient. And, and that's good. That's better than being fragile. But, um, Caleb says the, the thing you really want to be is anti-fragile, meaning not only do you weather problems, you actually are able to benefit from from chaos and problems and whatever. Now, when when I look at a highly when I look at society, obviously the society we live in right now in America and most of the of the first world is is very fragile in a lot of ways. 
And, you know, ideally, if I could wave a magic wand and create my ideal society, we would have a very highly decentralized society, uh, a, v- a very decentralized economy based on things like widespread private property ownership, voluntary exchanges, um, widespread kind of small to medium uh property ownership, but also entrepreneurship. In other words, people being much more economically self-sufficient. That would be a society and a system that is much more anti-fragile than where we live right now. And unfortunately, I don't have the magic wand to make that society happen tomorrow. And the society we live in is highly centralized, highly stratified, very specialized, very fragile. And so my advice would be to to learn about and think about this concept of being anti-fragile. Realize none of us has the magical power to make our overall society anti-fragile. But we do have the power to at least take care of, you know, you bring this up all the time, your circle of influence. What could you do as an individual with your, your immediate friends and family, your, your local community and so on? What can you do to make that anti-fragile? Because the larger system of the United States or wherever it is you're living, if you're in most parts of the developed world, that's very fragile and you can't change that right now. But what can you do to make your own little area anti-fragile? I think a big part of it is maximizing your versatility, um, learning as much knowledge and skills as you can, especially if it's actually useful stuff. And also I think something that people don't think about a lot is trying to get good at the skill of learning new stuff, which actually is a specific skill, the skill of being adaptable and, and picking things up and learning things well and quickly. I think if you can make an individual anti-fragile as much as possible, that's where you would look. You would look to be the superhero who kind of um, uh, picks up the, the, the superpowers from anyone who fights you. <laughs> that's, that's the super, that's the superhero that's anti-fragile. You know, the more powerful of an opponent attacks him, the more powerful he gets. So that's, that's what I, I would recommend. And whatever that means to you, it's going to mean different things to different people depending on their situation and their background and what they already have and what they already know. But, um, that's that's the way I would suggest approaching it. Look at where you're at, what you have in terms of resources, and stop wasting your time and your energy and resources on trying to fix a larger, broken system because the people in charge are unwilling and unable to fix that system. And instead, all those resources that you would dump into like getting, quote-unquote, the right people elected, use those resources to to instead cultivate yourself, your own human resource, and, and kind of the, the stuff that's actually around you. And, and, I, and I think one, one more thing I'll say about collapse is we've mostly talked about the downside of collapses, but it actually is true. I would urge people to keep in mind that collapse can be horrible for a lot of the people living through it, but on the other hand, collapses bring opportunities. They bring opportunities to the people who are smart and are paying attention, who are ahead of the crowd, ahead of the curve, the people who are versatile, the people who are adaptable. Keep in mind, while their short-term pain 
oftentimes long term you can have a, a better situation when you kind of come out the far end. I mean, you wipe the slate clean of a defective system and not always, but, but many times on the far end of that, you come into something better. And I would say that a good example of this happening is Greece. When you had Bronze Age Mycenae in Greece, there, there were people who did well under that, but a lot of people were really impoverished peasants who were almost like slaves. And Mycenae in Greece during the Bronze Age, it had a centrally planned economy where the kings of each little Greek kingdom would just micromanage and dictate everyone's uh, economic activity and, and, and what they planted and how they farmed and whatever. It was all centrally planned. And when those kingdoms collapsed, a lot of people suffered. But a lot of farmers actually ended up being better off in the long run because they went from being peasants who were, in some cases, not a whole lot better than slaves. And they became yeoman farmers. They became small farmers who really owned and controlled their own land, their own economic destiny. They weren't fabulously wealthy. They had to live through a dark age with some tough times and whatever. But they ended up in the long term being better off than they were when they were just the flunky of some central planner. So, you know, whatever that, whatever, whatever anyone thinks that, that, that means to you today, the, the point is that collapse, horrible as it can be, it oftentimes does have opportunities and potential upsides in the long term. Yeah, definitely. So you want to like kind of tell people how they can find out about your podcast, uh, learn more about you, things like that. Sure. Just put in dangerousHistoryPodcast.com. DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And it's available in all the usual podcast venues, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music recently added that, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can follow the show and connect with it on Facebook, uh, Twitter. I'm Dangerous History CJ on Twitter. So all that good stuff. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. You've certainly given us a lot to think about and I think some really good practical advice. And thank you for the work you do with your show because um, we need as much real education for people in the world today as possible, and uh, you're doing a good job with that. So thanks for all of that stuff. Well, thank you, Jack. Back at you, and um, I, I appreciate you having me on again. Well, great stuff from uh, Prof. CJ and definitely stuff to make you think. I really do recommend you take out, check out his podcast. I was actually listening to his podcast in prep for this one. I didn't finish it, his most recent one, but it's on 80s movies that were anti-war, like uh, War Games and uh, Short Circuit and uh, even Red Dawn mentioned there. You'd think that's not an anti-war movie, but if you, you, you just take the context in that he brings it to you with and you kind of understand uh, really, really interesting podcast. He goes into all different angles about things, and I think you'd enjoy uh, you know, taking a listen once in a while. Just don't let it interfere with listening to the Survival Podcast, guys, because that's, that's kind of important to me. And if you like the Survival Podcast and you want to support it, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do to do that is go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and I think you know all about that by now, so I'll cut that one short today. I do want to remind you guys, though, that we do have a short link to the website, right? I'm going to tell you about you know another short link here in a second. You probably know if you've been listening a lot what it is going to be. But do you know that if you go to tspc.co, 
tspc.co, it jumps straight to the Survival Podcast. That way, you guys, especially on mobile devices and phones and stuff, it's a lot less typing, tspc.co. Now, the other short link I was talking about is tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That will take you to a page on the Survival Podcast website that's for your shopping on Amazon. And all you do is go there, click the link, and go to Amazon, and then do your shopping, and we get credit, and you support our show. I really appreciate that so many of you guys are doing that. Um, and it is a completely painless way to support the Survival Podcast because it doesn't actually cost you anything. It really doesn't even cost you time. So if it's worth listening to the show and you can support it that easily, I'm not saying to go buy stuff on Amazon just to buy stuff on Amazon, but if you're going to do it anyway, go through TSPAS. And uh, if you are looking for stuff to buy, I have different stuff out every day in the TSP item of the day. And today I have a controversial one. I know I'm going to get some hate mail from people. I'm going to get some people who tell me they're not going to listen to me anymore or whatever, unless maybe I've scared all those people away by now. I don't know. But um, I just found out that the movie Vaxxed that I recommended this summer, uh, that you go see when it was in theaters, and it was hard to do because it was only in a few theaters, um, is now coming out on DVD. You can order it now, but it's not shipping till like mid-September, but you can pre-order it. As soon as I saw that, I figured I had to feature it, even though I know it'll probably cost me some listeners and some support because this is such a divisive issue, this issue of vaccines. I want to point out that I'm not anti-vaccine. I am not anti-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine, and I'm certainly not anti-science. And I'm tired of being called anti-vaccine and anti-science every time that I question the safety of the current vaccine protocols as a total thing in the United States today. But this movie, Vax, was produced by a guy named Del Bigtree. Del Bigtree, yes, that's the producer of the movie, not Andrew Wakefield. Del Bigtree is the producer of the TV series called The Doctors that airs on primetime television. And... What's interesting is two of the doctors from the panel of the doctors from the show appear in this movie, and there's there's video of these doctors, right, medical doctors, shouting at members of their own audience as being horrible people for questioning vaccines. And when they're presented with evidence in this movie that's from the CDC itself, the CDC's own documents, nobody tells them anything. They just hand them the documents. They say, read this. And both of them say they'd have big questions about giving their children or recommending any child get the combined MMR vaccine, especially before age three, after reading documents from the CDC, not from Dr. Wakefield. The criticism of this movie is so pathetic. I want to try to describe to you what it's like to actually know what I'm going to tell you before when the other person doesn't. Right Before I tell you, I want to explain the analogy. And, and, and to try to explain it to somebody and to deal with the the chosen clung to ignorance. Let's say that I said to you, let's say you said to me, Jack, there's a, a towel on the floor in the bathroom and it's soaking wet. Do you know how it got there? And I said, the towel's not wet, it's blue. And you said, well, first of all, when I looked at the towel, it was white. Um, but it could be blue and it could be wet at the same time. I'm not asking about the towel's color. I want to know if you know how the towel got wet or not. And I say, the towel's not wet. And I say, well, can you go, you said to me, well, Jack, can you go in the bathroom and look at the towel and see for yourself that it's wet? No, I don't need to go. I see that blue towel on the wall over there, and it's dry. And because that blue towel on that wall is dry, I know that all blue towels are dry, and there is no towel in that bathroom, and you can't prove it to me. Well, 
And you say, but I could prove it to you if you just go look at it. I refuse to look at it, but it's not wet. That's what it's like having a, a conversation with a, with a militant pro-vaccine person about this movie who has not seen it. It all goes back to the lie that the media spread all this year. It's based on a proven fraudulent study by Andrew Wakefield. Okay, please understand, that is a completely fraudulent statement. First of all, the movie is not, not, not about Andrew Wakefield's study. It's about fraud inside the CDC and the fraud that was leaked by the lead researcher on the, the study that's now the gold standard to prove MMR safe, Dr. Thompson. It's about his interactions with Del Bigtree and other people. Andrew Wakefield plays a very tiny role in the whole thing. It's not about Wakefield, it's about Thompson, who still works for the CDC, who is a whistleblower that told the truth about fraud and data raking in a study. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what the conclusions to all that are. I'm just saying maybe you should go see that. The next thing is, this fraudulent study that everybody keeps bringing up about Andrew Wakefield was a giant, massive study. It was on the correlation between uh, intestinal diseases like irritable bowel syndrome and autism. And not they cause autism, but does autism correlate to higher incidences of these bowel disruptions in these, in these things? In all the research, with 10 other doctors, Wakefield notices a high proportion of those with autism have the combined MMR vaccine. Okay? He notes this in a couple paragraphs, two small paragraphs, in a giant study. It does not say in the study at all, anywhere, and you can't prove me wrong. I dare you to. Go find the study and prove me wrong. It does not say in his study, MMR causes autism. It says there seems to be a correlation. Perhaps more research should be done into this, and parents might want to consider getting this vaccination in three separate doses. That's it. The study comes out. It's out for two years. Nobody makes a big deal out of it. Wakefield continues to research this stuff and draws his own conclusions. He comes out publicly and, and notes this and says, I even said this back in my study back here. He doesn't say the study proves anything. Just this is what I think. Immediately, the government of the United Kingdom stops the importation of the individual measles, mumps, and rubella vaccinations and only imports MMR, denying parents the choice of vaccinating and getting every vaccine that they're supposed to, just doing it at different times to monitor for side effects, etc. Okay? And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, this is what happened. Stop worrying about what should be done and start thinking about what happened. This is what happened. This is facts I'm giving you right now. Merck, who is the manufacturer of the vaccine, or whatever, whichever one is, it's either Merck or Glaxo, whoever was the, the, the manufacturer of the vaccine, the next year ceases to manufacture it individually and, and, and then denies everybody in the world, every parent in the world, the choice of getting these vaccines as individual vaccines. While all this is going on, okay, and that's the whole Wakefield study, that's it. And, that, and then he was attacked viciously. The journal retracted his study, though his study has no reason to be retracted. He was stripped of his medical license, but all the other doctors that signed off on the study weren't. Oh, but they didn't know he liked them. It wasn't about freaking autism. Or, or, I'm sorry, about MMR. It wasn't. The study drew no conclusions. It just made an observation. This is a witch hunt. Those doctors all signed off. None of them have retracted anything about the study, by the way. 
They haven't retracted jack shit because they don't have to. He was made a, 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 a villain in all this. And then this fraud goes on in the CDC where the, the CDC's own study, again, Wakefield's out now. He's tapped out. He's gone. He's, the CDC's own study shows a correlation between autism and MMR, and specifically worse with African-American males, and worse for everybody the earlier MMR is given. So the CDC doesn't like the results, so they, they do what's called data raking. They keep removing people from the study that they don't like until they get the result that they're looking for, They had a very difficult time doing it. They stripped out two-thirds of the study's uh, volume. They, they, they broke their own protocols. Dr. Thompson calls Dale B Bigtree, says, I want you to know about this stuff. Okay, And when they get a hold of these documents under Freedom of Information Act from the CDC, that's when all this blows. And, and, and Wakefield and Big Tree and several others together put this documentary together, not about Andrew Wakefield, about the CDC committing fraud. And you can disagree with everything I said. I would challenge you to do this. Get the DVD, watch the movie with an open mind, and then if you feel that it's in error, find facts of the error. Don't co commit an ad hominem attack a dog pile, pile on an hominid attack against a man. This is not about Andrew Wakefield, both literally and figuratively. It's not. It's about whether or not there is a risk associated with vaccine injury from the combined MMR. I personally feel that there is. I also don't feel that every single child that has autism has autism because they got vaccinated. I don't believe it is the cause. I think it, there, is a, there is a strong correlation And our CDC has lied to us. Now, I'm going to ask those of you that are it's pissed off right now. Most of you would believe that almost every single department of government is lying to us at one point or another. Why do you think the CDC wouldn't? So I just, again, off the box, off the soapbox, I challenge you, instead of being mad at me, instead of being angry, instead of saying something stupid like it's been debunked, because it hasn't, The movie has not been debunked. Now, you want to you go do it? Go do it. I'll have you on the show. You can explain it. All right? But you have to talk about the actual facts. And you have to counter the individual facts presented in the movie, not something that happened in an unrelated study that one of the people that, that's part of the movie was part of. When you, and, and this is what I've noticed about debunkers. One, they haven't seen a movie, or, or critics, critics, they haven't seen the movie. Two, they don't know what the movie's about. They don't know what I just told you. They think the movie's about something it's not about. And it's just, again, you imagine having a conversation with somebody. There's a wet towel in the bathroom. Do you know how it got there? The towel's not wet, and it's not in the bathroom. It's over here on the wall, and it's blue. No, that's a towel on the wall over there that's blue. I understand it. It's dry. That's not what I'm saying. There's a, a wet towel in the bathroom. I don't believe it. Will you go look at the towel? No. I don't need to. It's been debunked. That's what it all sounds like to me. That's how preposterous it sounds. And I bet you if you see the movie, even if you don't come to the same conclusions I did, that's how stupid it'll sound to you too. And you got to ask yourself, why has such a war been waged against this movie? Why has so, not just negative press, not just negative press, getting it prevented from being shown in movie theaters? People process. Let me tell you one more quick story on this before we wrap up today. When I went to see this movie, There was a guy with a sign in literature 
in front of the theater. He was a doctor. He dressed very nice. And he was quite angry. You could see anger. He was angry about this movie even being there. And he was there to fix it all and tell people the truth. And they should listen to it, damn it. He's a doctor. And he was being kind of rude to people and very obnoxious sounding. But everybody was being dramatically nice to him. You know, a single protester is not a threat, right? And he was like saying, this theater should be shut down. Nobody even cared about that. And he said, I believe in science. I said, really? You believe in science? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, in science. Do we not look at an issue from all sides and gather all pertinent and, and, and factual information that we can? And once we have all that information, then we, we put it to a test through the experimental process. We, and then, and only then do we draw a conclusion that we call a theory. He looked at me like, who's this giant redneck with a beard and a neck knife to speak this way? But said, well, yeah. I mean, how do you argue with that as a man of science, right? So I said, then, have you seen this movie? No, and I don't need to. And he starts going, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. You haven't seen the movie. No. So you don't have all the information, right? Andrew Wakeswell's study was a fraud. Okay, but, um, okay, hold on. This movie's not about his study. But he's the one that did it. Okay, stop. Here's my deal. I, I'm here to learn. I don't have any conclusions yet. I want all the information possible. Will you come see this movie? I'll buy you a ticket. And when this movie's over, you can tell me how wrong it is. He declined. The towel is wet in the bathroom. Do you know how it got that way? There is no towel in the bathroom. It's over here on the wall and it's dry. Will you go look at the towel so you can see for you? No, I don't need to. It's been debunked. I just ask that you possibly take a look at it with an open mind and draw your own conclusions. Anyway, with that, before we uh, close out today, let me uh, remind you guys that another thing that you can use on our website is the Survival Podcast Business Directory, and you can find that just by going to tspbiz.com, and you'll see all the different uh, entrepreneurial companies that are part of this community that are there listed on the directory. And uh, let me tell you who today's supporting uh, directory business is. It's the Wealthsteading Podcast by John Pugliano, expert council member himself. It is a great, great podcast to learn more about investing and how to manage your money and how to win with money and at life. John is a great dude. Remember, he will be right here at Nine Mile Farm TSP Ranch in the in October, the last week of October, for our October workshop. He will be teaching about joint property ownerships through LLP, and he will also be talking about ham radio communications. Got a lot of great stuff for you coming on the event very soon. As for today's closing song we went through a lot of heavy topics today and this one kind of makes light of it in a in a way so to speak and uh i'm not going to say anything about it i believe it speaks for itself and i bet you many of you when you when you heard the topic of the day today and you heard cj and i talk you said i bet you this is what he's going to play at the end of the show and sure enough here it is and with that this has been jack spierko with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if tom's gets up or even if they don't that's great it starts with us